Uh, Jangan usually fumbles through the technical part. It's, I apologize. You, oh. you seem to come in easily, so it's great. You don't have to. I mean, this, this seems to be a constant in human population. There is a certain subset of each <laughs> age cohort that operates smoothly, yes, yes. that do not scare yes. computers. Yeah. And yeah. occasionally, when like one day out of a hundred, I do generate IT distortion of the force. Like everything I touch just goes down, runs out of battery, disconnects from the web. But yeah, for some people, yeah, it's yeah. like 90 days out of a hundred. I have a colleague That's like true. that who's like, I think he's still stuck with his Nokia phone till like two years ago. Yeah. Well, he just hung up on me. So he <laughs> must be up. <laughs> Is that how it usually works with, with you guys? Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to a special episode of LLB Podcast, Low Level Barbarians. Today we are doing a special coverage, I don't know, maybe one of hopefully our last few ones on covering Ukraine. And today we have with us our Barbarian bestie, Dmitry Levitt. Did I say your last name correctly? Levitt? Correct. Right. Uh, so, Dmitry, uh, you are a venture capitalist based out of Southeast Asia, but he is a Russian citizen, which comes with certain disclaimers. So, I don't know, maybe you want to discuss briefly, you know, maybe who you are, your background and the disclaimers? Oh, certainly. So, the self-introduction would be, yep, a Russian, guilty as charged, originally from uh, St. Petersburg, wonderful city in the northwest of the country, uh, based out of Singapore since 2005, dear Lord. And uh, most of this time spent um, running around Southeast Asia, looking at Southeast Asia's digital economy under various banners since 2011 under my own banner. So I'm part of the team behind a company called Center Ventures, a Series A investor, standard issue, um, Southeast Asia regional play with um, fintech angles on top. Uh, as for today's podcast, it's an unusual capacity for me because I very rarely wander outside of my area of competence, well, sub, sub, presumed competence, digital economy. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, do not treat me as an expert on anything military, logistics, or for that matter, Russian economy, left too long ago. But by way of disclaimers and small font, I guess it's important to mention that because my legal situation in current Russian Federation is murky at best and so is the situation of relatives and friends i still have back there um i'll borrow a little bit from my experience of living in singapore in the last 15 years and uh, censor myself richly and profoundly so i do apologize to the audience for that i've already mentioned about my very limited expertise on all things military so probably don't trust any of my views on the next few months next few decades sure next few months not credible <laughs> And um, seeing how questions might come up on the what is happening in Russia, two things. One is I do, as everybody else does, leave an information bubble of my own choice and construction. Now, I try to stretch my telegram to cover, what's that now, 200 different channels, all the way from the trenches on the Ukrainian side to the far, far, far pro-Putin right in Russia, which is really toxic to read. Um, so I tried to break out of the bubble, but still I default to people as it's easier for me to read and listen to. So color me far left liberal as far as um, overseas Russians are concerned. And the second disclaimer is every time I try to form a view on what is going on, I end up noticing that my view verbatim coincides with one of the positions by one of the parties in the information war. 
And I can never quite separate what I think from what the world thinks anymore. So if I by any chance say something in defense of overseas Russians who are being chased by their origins and then suddenly sound like one of those PR flags protecting sanctioned oligarchs in London, again, I apologize. Mm -hmm. I try not to do this intentionally. I'll try to, to filter things out. And finally, um, the ethics of the whole thing are murky at best. I can pass moral judgments from here till Christmas, all I like, but ethically to wish death on people who used to be my compatriots or to wish uh, success on the battlefield to whoever or to judge millions of people whose minds I barely understand, I might be inclined to do so emotionally. But if I end up doing that on this podcast, please do ignore me and mute me because this is not intended and probably just um, lack of coffee in the morning speaking. So there, as any proper VC, I show up with two pages of small font in the beginning. Happy to be. <laughs> well, I think, I think regardless, you know, uh, there, there's very few media these days that provides a long format, you know, re regardless with the disclaimers which I still think are valuable, you know, at least people know the biases up front and then they could have a framework to work backwards to see what insights they could pull from it. And I think that's why we're doing this episode, right? You know, it's quite rare you get to meet someone from Russia or previously living from Russia or at least the context. And, you know, the fact that you even tried to break your bubble says a lot, right? And that I think is more than what the average person does. Like even like low-level low barbarians covering this topic has stretched me <laughs> beyond way more than what I would ever usually do for headlines. And it's been very challenging. You know, it's very challenging, especially with, like you said, the information propaganda through all that. Um, but that being said, you know, so I think maybe we could dive right in uh, and then we can just talk about what's the, the current narratives up to date. And I, for me, this was researched earlier in the week. So we're filming this on the 26th of March. We are well past the month mark, the first month of the war. Uh, it feels a lot longer given what we've been hearing and seeing, right? But earlier in the week, it seemed there seems to be this one thread narrative that, uh, and I'm, I'm taking a lot of analysis borrowed as well, right? So a lot of the stuff that I'm, that I'm gonna talk about or quote comes from a few different sources. One primarily being from uh, an interview I heard on March 8th with Marco Papik on Invest with the Best. He is a partner chief strategist at Clock Tower Group, which focuses on geopolitics and economic research. So he is a professional in terms of studying war and the geopolitics. Uh, so, and that was some of the best coverage I've heard in terms of getting some frameworks and nuances to understand this. Um, and the main thread that I've been trying to follow is uh, that Russia really actually has been performing poorly. That just seems to be quite apparent. Earlier on in the first few weeks, I just felt it was just too heavily propaganda. But, you know, hearing Marco talk about it, it seems to be a fact that, you know, Russia has been performing poorly, which kind of leads to this idea that's been going around as well, that, you know, Russia is headed towards a strategic defeat where they can win physically. Maybe eventually they take all the major cities, you know, at a high cost, but they can never take the, you know, the hearts and minds of the people. And so I think that, you know, what's really interesting that also lends to this narrative that uh, in the podcast I listened to is that, you know, in the media, we also hear about all the hypocrisy of the American wars, you know, uh, comparing how the West has done this before, but there's not as big backlash. But there was one interesting nuance that leads to it. It's idea of strategic defeat is that in Iraq, you know, 65% of Iraqis, you know, if you know about Islam, right, the majority of the population is Shia. 
And when the U.S. invaded, they were led by a Sunni dictatorship of 20% minority of the country. So I'm not sure where Marco got this statistic, but he was saying 80% of the population actually welcomed the U.S., right? In Afghanistan, the Taliban are actually Pashtu. So 60% of Afghanistan is not Pashtu. So logically, by some way or degree that, you know, maybe it's not one-to-one, -one, but a large population of Af Afghans probably also welcomed the U.S., which leads to why U.S. was able to stay very long-term for a pro protracted war, which does not seem to be the case here in Ukraine, right? You know, and given the, the geography of Ukraine, even if they are take major cities, you know, a lot of mountains and forests, et cetera, et cetera, it's just very hard and it just leads to more pain and suffering, right? And so earlier in the week, the headlines were pointing to, it seemed that, you know, everything was headed towards a stalemate. And if there's a stalemate, then possibly negotiated peace. So that that's what I kind of was caught up to, up to date with all the culminating headlines. You know, if you can try to read in between all of the, the propaganda and whatnot, it just does seem to be the fact that if Russia cannot secure a major city, supply chains, are really hard pressed to kind of double down to continue the pain. And the protract protraction of the war leads to more antagonizing of neighboring states like Poland. And at the same time, there's just too much pain in Ukraine, right? These cities are getting decimated. The displacement of the people is huge, which I think we'll probably talk about later from the economic side or the you know effects of the, the world side. But in terms of the war side, you know, it's just too much loss that Ukraine can't also afford to keep going on, right? Um, so I don't know. It's, I'm not too sure what happened in the past few days. So uh, do you guys kind of agree with this? Do you guys think there's anything to add to this or anything to pick out from it? I'll probably try to split the three topics, uh, at least three that uh, this piece of research points to. There is the military aspect of it, which I'll try to speak to as little as possible. It's uh, completely 100% yeah. occluded by information warfare. There is the general topic of uh unity of ukraine and then there is the topic of what will happen next so on the military side of things i know what you guys know uh, i try to follow the pro pro russian channels a little bit to see what the folks who think they're in the know say mm. and there is to put it very very mildly frustration and dissatisfaction with quality of supplies and command okay but i also do notice the angry uh determined we've been here before and our supreme commanders are always crap and it never stopped us before kind of mood which i yeah. hope is just a few combat officers cornered understandably in the frozen forest being shot at i am not entirely sure whether this is um, something that's spreading across the entire uh, armed forces. So if it's just a few uh, vocal voices on Telegram. So I would suggest that militarily, unfortunately, tragically, Russian army can still carry on inflicting pain for weeks and months on end. And there is yeah. no crumbling in sight, even though, and yeah. again, this is where I'm on murky ethical grounds. I would very much hope it crumbles tomorrow, yesterday. Then there is this strategic defeat angle of will Ukraine hold up? And I don't even want to talk and think about destroyed cities here, but um, I would say that for the next couple of decades, saying anything pro-Russian in Ukraine would be a matter of being punched in the face. So whatever disagreements in the societies may have existed before, 
they are no longer an acceptable part of public discourse. So in that aspect, mm. the, the I would say the war is well and truly lost if I in the first place understood what the purpose of the war was. If it was indeed yeah. to persuade the Ukrainian nation to join Russian nation, if that was the idiocy that drove the whole thing, then it's lost for sure. And then yeah. there is the third aspect of uh, what's next and the stalemate bit. Oof, that's what I was doing the disclaimer on in the beginning of the call because it's so many factors. But by yeah. the vibe of it from the press and from the information warfare, as of this morning, most of the Russian troops are seen digging in for the long term, building trenches, setting up defensible positions on where they are at the moment and preparing to stay there for a long, long time. And it looks like the very same situation is happening on the Ukrainian side. And I hope, desperately hope, that there will be at least some negotiation and exchange of prisoners of war. And the mm. conversation about safe escape of civilians from Mariupol, Kharkov, a couple of other somewhat besieged cities. Not sorry, not somewhat, they're massively besieged, but they're not completely yeah. encircled. And that's kind yeah. of, I think, the only thing that we, I mean, anybody who cares for that part of the world should hope for. But what will happen beyond that? anybody's guess and it will be heavily determined on what happens inside russia itself of which we'll speak okay jangan do you want to comment on that uh not really a comment but uh, but this one thing which has been puzzling me so um right before the 24th of uh, of february um i was um i was in opinion that uh, this war would not happen because um because you don't seem to see any like massive propaganda uh, inside Russia saying that uh, I mean try to mobilize the the public support. This happened after the war had had began, and um, and you don't see I mean, and, and, and another data point I had was that uh, there was no movement from the Chinese embassy. I mean, even if they knew that this this was going to happen, they probably would have um, sort of started the evacuation of Chinese nationals. There were thousands of them. Uh, very early on, I mean, they did evacuation uh, from Af Afghanistan three months before before the U.S. withdrew. So, so, so they they they, they were typically pretty informed. So, so I'm just curious, um, linking that to the point of uh, what did Dimitri made, what's the purpose of this war, and and how did it even start? So, 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 so this is something I, I, I've been very puzzled about, and of course, I mean. In the media, in social media, I mean, it's, it's easy to paint a, a one-sided um, sort of um, sort of angle, saying that hey, um, Putin's maniac, or, or or the other side saying that hey, hey, Zelensky is uh, whatever, right? I mean, but but for, from what you have seen, what what was what what was the mood before the war? I mean, how, how did this happen? Another question to me, I assume. Mm. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah speak about putting somebody on the spot um so first of all for the topic of propaganda mm. because you're correct the level of histrionics from the official kremlin-run media is a very indicative thing of what's happening inside as they say in russian media inside the bunker uh and it moved from the general background radiation of uh the dark forces are gathering on the western borders and ukrainians are one of the channels as of 23rd of february to a couple of maybe weeks of stunned silence not silence sorry um stunned denial of reality 
and then I, I, I can't quite explain um, the level of intensity to which it was ratcheted up. So it went from background malice to Goebbels plus to complete hysteria within probably a week. From, uh, yeah, our brave paratroopers will drop on on a few unsuspecting uh, bands of Nazis and subdue them mm. to uh, everybody in the nation unite against the flag. And let's, I kid you not, I don't want to even send you links to those photos. So please don't look at them and don't include them into the coverage. But photos of little kids in kindergartens being asked to form into a Z, which has become the unofficial oh, official symbol. Yeah. Of, of of this um, thing in Russia. So the propaganda is now catching up on everything I imagine they would have done if they knew what is coming. Mm. And they are now working double time to make sure whatever part of the population listens to them gets fomented into hysteria. Now, does it mean that the country is being prepped for a long haul or does it mean that they are trying to just desensitized desensitized part of the population to the otherwise very bad news from the economy i cannot say that was on the propaganda topic but the, the bigger the gigantic question jingan is asking way above my pay grade is the silly deflective way to answer this question but um maybe into the notes for the podcast alex you can put a link to that research bit from carnegie's moscow center i sent you okay. a week or so ago which does, I thought, pretty thoughtful job of splitting what is generally referred to as Putin's government or Russia's elite into several viscerally warring camps. Mm. And usually it's simplified in the media into Siloiki, like people of the force versus liberals. But it's a rich, interesting tapestry of little groups. And there are a couple of groups that do win massively in a shrunk besieged economy. The mm. folks who mm. propagate far, far right patriotic ideologies, they weren't getting no. a lot of media budgets. Now they will have a look at who just became the head of Russia's number one media channel. Uh, mm. There are folks who peddle ideas about super weapons and uh, asymmetric warfare. They previously had to fight for budgets with the generals that were pushing for conventional forces. And now these generals have been shamed and partially killed. So opportunity mm, yeah. to get a lot more allocation for various nefariousness, whether it's cyber, whether it's bio, and a couple of other groups of business interests that feed off a war economy. And they were previously mm. on the fringes, and now they'll be able to pick up dollars for cents as far as assets are concerned, because of everybody yeah. else running away from the country and they'll finally be the ones calling the shots. So, yeah. again, referring to the far, far left liberal bubble that I exist in, the one of the narratives there is everybody is rapidly rereading uh, Germans and Austrians who were writing circa 1937-1939 and um, digging up the history of the various German military companies, and for that matter, Japanese military companies, that benefited from the beginning of what we now know the second world war and those industrial and commercial interests only came out dozens of years later when people actually did some research on them and right now folks in russia though outside of russia who think about russia 
enthusiastically figuring out who are the the war conglomerates, the Zaibatsus, um, that are driving this right now. Yeah. And it's very hard to say who they are, but that article will shed some light. If, if I'm to extrapolate, like, it, it, it doesn't sound like, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, despite your bias, do you think there's a large enough majority of a Russian political class behind Putin then to allow this to continue? I mean, it sounds like it's just not as monolithic as, you know, Western media would like to put it. Uh, but I don't know, from your viewpoint, is, is, do you think that's the case? I'm no longer sure there is such a thing as a political class. Again, I refer to that article and only because I don't want to take okay. time on the podcast um, uh, elaborating on the different groups there. But there are bureaucrats who do what they're told. There are military guys who go and die where they are told to die. And then yeah. there are business people who have already made their money and they would rather like for the whole thing to simmer down and be another quiet banana republic without too much emotion or political histrionics or foreign policy. And they're the guys who already live overseas. And then there would be the business group that hasn't made money yet and would rather like to make it and has a few things to sell to Russian state and would like Russian state to um, ask them for the services and provide them with capital. And yeah. that group is not just behind Putin. I think they are the ones driving the events. Yeah, it's very, which is very interesting. So I think essentially what you're describing is this very loose social contract amongst all these groups from the liberal to the right or different industries or powers, right? That they, as long as there was a stable regime that Putin was doing, uh, controlling, that everyone's existing fine, you know, whether if you were liberal or conservative, but this war seems to have upended all that. Right. So it seems that everything's getting rewritten at this point. Very true. I'm, again, not entirely sure whether you could say everybody was at an easy peace and somebody broke the compact and now the contract yeah. is falling apart, which is probably sounds like what it is. Or is it yeah. the low key civil war between these groups that has been happening for the last 20 years mm, and one of the splinters yeah. actually won? I wouldn't describe the relationship between liberal pro-economy arm of state bureaucracy and the uh, hardcore adventurist proponents of military operations in Africa as in any way peaceful. Mm -hmm. They've been squabbling, but it was, I think it was Churchill who said that fight of bulldogs under the carpet. Yeah. And now the carpet was torn and a couple of bulldogs mm -hmm. won. Since, since we're on this kind of topic then, you know, uh, economically speaking, what are your thoughts on the, the implications then for people of Russia and the world? And how does that, how does, how does this work out with the contract with Russia and the world now, or even just domestically too, even? Okay. okay. Uh, the high level of how it, what it means for the world, that's over to and I can just provide a few facts and factoids on the ground. Um, so a couple of weeks of almost full-time watching of how the sanctions evolve. I, I wouldn't call them sanctions anymore. It's blockade. Um, probably yeah. there is a stronger word than blockade. I just don't know it yet. Um, not to mention complete uh, moral, sorry, moral and value-based exclusion. Um, but intense though it was and is, and intense though the coverage was and is, the actual real impact on the ground so far is tremendous, but has not yet been felt. Think hmm. the chicken that has been decapitated, but still runs around the yard. 
Mm. So it's a big beast. It's a relatively primitive economy, but it's a big beast. So supplies in the warehouses are still there. Inventory is still in the production. Energy is still running. And while folks who understand the economics have got on the plane and left and now do fantastically interesting economics podcasts from places like London and New York, which is really, really worth listening to. I'll send you a couple of names of folks that I follow some top-notch quality economic analysis on a very unusual event. On the ground, for the vast majority of the population, so far, nothing has happened. Yeah. There is inertia to these sanctions that will only make them felt. I have a feeling towards June, June, July. Okay. And we are talking majority of the population of the major cities. Never mind the majority of the rest of the 140 million strong country. So yeah. the real, real, um, oh shit, this is what's really happening, will arrive towards November, September, December, who knows, Q4 this year. Yeah. So if the purpose of the sanctions is to punish and contain, oh yeah, it will work. But if it's to impress upon majority of population that your leaders are doing something wrong, timelines are not right yeah. now the effect on russian economy will be is already absolutely devastating because of a very simple dependency on import of just about everything just to give you a somewhat amusing um, tidbit some of the elements of the manufacturing process that produces paper like printer paper these elements are not available in russia they're imported from finland used to be imported mm -hmm. from finland so right now, tax police in Russia is saying no more need for paper receipts. <laughs> wow. There are literally government institutions that have signs on their doors saying, bring your own A4 paper. We have none. That's wow. the beginning. So yeah. that's just a tiny little example. And it's almost funny if it were not to be so tragic. I can think of maybe a hundred more, but the basics are starting to disappear from economic machine. And um, I'm hearing forecasts of 10 to 20% loss of GDP this year, but I'm wow. amazed how can it be? It should be something like 50, 60 if you count it right. But then again, oil and gas, biggest component, and it's Correct. all very political and whether it continues flowing or not. But yeah, the rest of the economy that is not extracting resources and selling them through that little hole towards Europe, mm -hmm. I cannot see how this stops at the level of Venezuela or Iran it slides much further. Yeah, which is very different than what you hear in the news. It seems at least the, the Western media saying it's a lot worse currently, but what you're saying, it's going to be a lot worse much later on and it's oh, not yeah. fully felt yet. It's 10x later this year for majority of the population, even though if you are well equipped with the tools of economic analysis, you already know what's coming. So you kind of sort of yeah. think mm. uh, it happened already. Yes, it happened, but there is lag to the system. Do, do you guys, uh, Jangan, or do you think there's a spillover systemic effect because of this? Do, 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 do the world economies and stock markets get dragged down along with this 10x what's coming in the future? Or is it just going to be contained in Russia only? Well, I mean, first, AliExpress has already been impacted, right? The biggest market is Russia. So um, so, so, so I, I think there will be spillover for sure. Um, but but, but, but my, my question is that, I mean, you could block it. Uh, does that any does that serve any purpose to to basically 
crumble a regime or or, or sort of um, sort of force um, force a regime to to actually change its tactics or or, 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 or sort of uh, slow down its uh, its its aggression because um, um, I've I've seen lots of cases of uh, of countries under blockade and it doesn't seem to um, to to be able to basically basically destabilize any regime so. Um, you look at Venezuela, you look at North Korea, you look at China before 1971, and you look at Iran. I mean, I was in Iran a few years ago. Um, because of the blockade, they built their own industry and became more or less, more or less self-sustainable for, me, for, for many sectors. So um, so does, does that serve any purpose politically? Uh, this is something I'm actually quite curious about. Well, if the question is, can I read the minds of people who make these decisions? Absolutely no. Um, I can suspect that there are some motives that are genuine, some are motives that are selfish. Mm. How about I just narrate what I see in the very in the different bubbles and narratives, and then we'll see if any of that makes sense. So inside Russian media, the summary of what's going on is Western sanctions are a usual thing. It has not damaged our friends in Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, and what have you, and it will not damage us and Soviet Union existed under sanctions and it's all fine, never mind. Which is a bunch of very jumbled statements that reflect reality not at all, because despite what the propaganda might say Soviet Union wasn't really under a lot of economic sanctions. There were a few targeted ones that crippled its high-tech industries. But it's a narrative that has taken off quite dramatically inside Russia, and I think it's starting to leak into the outside of Russia propaganda narratives, which we should also talk about, like what the pro-Kremlin bots are talking about in Hindi and in Thai and in Bahasa. Uh, but yeah, the general perception inside the country, yeah, what about sanctions, whatever. But then there is a small subset of technocratic operators inside and outside of Russia now that understand that the economy that has been built in the last 25, 30 years is incredibly dependent, not just on inflow of cash in exchange for gas and oil, but also on inflow of components of all sorts. And not all of them could be procured from China and not all of them would be sold by China. So that narrative will explode in a bit, but it will take a while, as just discussed, for it to um, to actually become reality. Um, the um, Sorry, I, I think I talked myself into the So there is this one narrative about sanctions are fine, never mind, we've seen it all before. Um, then there is the narrative that Kremlin propaganda pushes very heavily right now, which is, oh, these sanctions are just to please uh, Western uh, audiences so that their leaders are re-elected because it's rather popular <laughs> and um, and uh, vote-winning to bash the evil Ruskies. Yeah. I cannot comment on that. We will have to get another guest who actually understands politics of Western Europe and the United States. Yeah. But that's something that I can see information warfare operators uh, that are very, very pro-Russian pushing hard. And then there is a narrative that I think I agree with most, which is you're dealing with a system. So a few nation states have declared their sanctions slash blockade, probably mostly to cripple access to weaponry and resources so that Russian army is not as capable of wreaking havoc as it was after 20 years of being able to restock without any limits. And then the rest of the system of 
as, a, as it were, market forces just joined the fund. And, uh, you know, media kicked in uh, illegal, uh, what am I going to call it, infection? Yeah, probably infection risks kicked in. So then it became untenable for everybody from BP to McDonald's to continue operating. And it became a free-for-all that doesn't have one big generic purpose anymore. It's just how the market economy reacts to a risk of being either shamed on the CNN or barred from operation with the US dollars, which turns out to be an economic warfare equivalent of a nuke by the looks of it. I mean, it, it just, it just you know, all those kind of buckets or say, say if those were all concentric circles are not mutually exclusive. Mm. It, it could be the decision-making was the intersect of quite a few of these things, right? So probably a complete ungodly mess over the course of several weeks yeah. of everybody reacting to a situation. And now different media bubbles pluck different threads of it Correct. and amplify them. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly, it could just be all of it culminating together. And, and because what's going through my mind is like, it could be completely wrong, but honestly, a very simple answer is just, you know, from a Western perspective, this is good versus bad. And that's a very easy narrative to tack onto everything that's all strategic or tactical that you benefit from too. Right. So it just seems like it all could just be, that it could be as simple as that, you know, like this is, uh, again, I, I prefer to think that it after, up to a certain point, your way of life will get infringed upon, which is probably the logic of Putin's aggression. And it's the same thing if you know you flip it around the other way around you know if if you know authoritarianism keeps pushing on to democracy it is a natural good reason regardless of all the other beneficial things that you talked about for whatever side you're talking you know the benefits right so i don't see it as you know being completely one one or the other right well, um, I can, and then I, can, I, don't, I don't know I'm, apologies i'll yeah. just add that there is one very very far left liberal part of again my information bubble that seems to cohere around the following point of view that the collective West, if there is even such a thing, or collection of market economies, let's not be yeah. too specific about which one is authoritarian, which is not, finally created or rather demonstrated in practice as sort of a real common defense, an immune system, if you like, mm. that kicks in every time somebody breaks the international order a little bit too harshly. It doesn't get triggered when a government bombs its own citizens in Myanmar or in Belarus. It doesn't kick in when a small local border issue is being resolved between Thailand and Cambodia. But when it's profoundly crimes against humanity, it does kick in beyond just a couple of formal sanctions and all the way into the corporate boardrooms. That is a hopeful little narrative that's popping up among the <laughs> leftist overseas Russians that are saying, Finally, United Nations have been recreated, but in a slightly different way and the shape yeah. of the economy rejecting a country. I am kind of sort of hopeful that way too, even though probably it's a very naive view. Well, it's, it's a very fascinating view because say, assuming any part of that was true, it implies that the past few decades of foreign policy of the West was effective, right? You know, Cold War continues, but in much more subtle, subtle way. And it implies that it actually was set up the foundation for that, that to happen, if, assuming it is true, you know, like once someone steps out of the line, you know, you get punished. Right. So but it, just, it seems it does seem to a little bit too cohesive and too logical, but, you know, it's, it's probably more accidental than anything. But yeah, as that, any that emerging really systems nice. are. And again, I will yeah. rephrase because I think you've taken my point and rephrased it slightly. So I'll rephrase it back. 
it's not West, it's human civilization. And yes, okay. lots yeah, and sure. lots and lots sure of very enough. peculiar characters have been integrated into global economy, regardless of their ethnic, yeah. gender, and religious and political hangups. And now it's becoming increasingly painful to step out of the course of human civilization and do uncivil things. And yeah. previously, you would just get a few slaps in the face on the TV screen of a major TV channel, and then it's business as usual. <laughs> and now, supposedly, the system is a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more punitive. Here is to hope. I mean, my, my only comment with John Guy and what you said was, um, I mean, this, this gets a little bit off topic, but I, I do think sanctions, you know, countries can respond and they adapt. It does not mean it's efficient. It does not mean it's inflationary or it's not better to integrate much easier into a globalized world, right? You know, and especially in the case of Iran, because that is exactly what keeps bringing them back to the table to negotiate, you know, the nuclear policy. Uh, they would like to easily negotiate, but if, of course, if you keep cornering them, uh, and I think this completely slipped through the media circuit is that they're ramping up their nuclear programs exponentially, much faster now, right? The, the capabilities soon, like at this, at the rate that we're going, they're probably gonna have nuclear weapons probably very soon if we don't resolve this. And, you know, Biden currently has to address this, but, you know, the Ukraine war is the one that's kind of taking precedence over this. Uh, but, you know, basically the, the, the whole, Trump's whole policy with that and why he kind of dismantled it was because it was not unilaterally no nuclear policy, like no nuclear program. It was only after 25 years that then, they, then you know, then Iran can pursue nuclear development however they wanted. So that's why Trump said no, which was I found very interesting. So a lot of these things are kind of slipping through. And uh, again, and the thread back to this is the sanctions. The reason why they keep coming, wanting to negotiate talks, because I think they do matter. It's just much easier for your population and your life or what people want. And so I don't um, know. Um, I think Alex, can adapt up to a certain extent. Does, doesn't mean it's good. You know? um, so so I think I think Dimitri made a good point just now about um, sort of uh, the non-existence of a single political class, right? I mean, different interest groups uh, in a society, yeah. in a country. So, so when we say that when a sanction is levied uh, against a country, and of course, there, there there will be people who benefit from the sanctions inside the country. There will be people who suffer harshly, primarily sure. the the, yeah. the general population, but also a few few political uh, political classes. I mean, I mean, if you look at um, um, I mean, Iran, for example. I mean, you always have this like you know division of so so called the moderates or the reformers and the hardliners. I think the reality was probably much more nuanced with different subgroups, and there are people who benefit from that the. The sanctions, sure. whether it's for the political or the economic gains uh, that, that they have. I mean, I, I was in Iran and I was talking to, to, to a number of people and apparently there are these uh, very, very powerful foundations. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, it's called foundations. But basically run by part of the uh, clergy and uh, and they benefit enormously from, from, from all the sanctions and uh, there will be they they they, they will mm. be using all their efforts People to try power, to right? yeah to, to try to prevent the sanctions from being lifted. Yeah, so it, it points to incentives and who has the power and control and mm. whether or not that is that the rules could be rewritten. I guess right. So kind of what we all talked about just now. Um, so let's let's talk about then. You know, what do you guys think is the are the implications of the this kind of I don't know. Do you think this is a new information war or this is just the same form of propaganda just on new channels because we're in the twenty first century? Is, are there diff different implications going forward? 
or what, what do you guys think? I'm still doing my research. So quantitative politics and computerized propaganda are passion topics on top of my day job. Interesting. But I haven't yet seen anything useful come out of my usual sources. There is a little bit of work by Bellingcat. There are some folks who specialize in info warfare doing a bit of analysis on Twitter bot clouds and what they're peddling. Yeah. But I haven't seen anything consistent yet. So I probably pause on this and I'm not yet quite ready to say whether we see anything new by way of information warfare or not. The good old classic information warfare, the good versus evil, the stuff that's a century old, that's on display. But, um, yeah. you know, the nefarious, legendary, uh, incredibly pervasive, able to penetrate the United States political process, Russian propaganda, is somehow not on display at the moment not at mm. least visibly, like losing on every single bit of external propaganda front, even though I do see mm -hmm. some attempts to spread the poison in the collective unconscious of the global south, of which we'll speak in a bit. But it looks like yeah. all the best and brightest brains and the remnants of the budget are currently concentrated on indoctrinating the population internally. It mm -hmm. does sound to me like somebody or something inside the bunker has decided that it's too late to persuade the world we are the good guys. Let's persuade the population that we are the good guys. And that's where the mm -hmm. really innovative and interesting stuff is happening. I mean, leaving judgment out of it and just looking at how well the branding campaign around the letter Z was executed from a cold start mm -hmm. and a complete mess to a level of, I mean, we're getting to Lenny Riefenstahl. Riefenstahl? What, what was her last name? Anyway, the Nazi propagandist uh, movie and uh, yeah. production stage, um, Lenny Riefenstein, I think. Anyway, we're getting to that level where I think passed it already. So we just did mm -hmm. a stadium. Well, Russia did a stadium show with a few tens of thousands of people looking a little bit unconvinced that they should be there waving flags. But uh, <laughs> give it a couple of more weeks, it will be hundreds of thousands marching. And I hope yeah. they don't do the night torch march to two on the nose, oh but we're getting there. So I'd say yeah. information warfare currently directed internally. I don't see anything interesting externally, but then I'll wait for research to come out. Bellingcat and Christo Grozev, they are the guys to follow. I'm not sure which okay. bit of that is info warfare, which bit of that is original research, but whatever they post usually fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, well, uh, Externally, you mentioned you're not too sure, but we'll, we'll talk about that, right? Because there are there are effects that we see in Southeast Asia and broader. But before we get there, Jangan, you what are, what is your take on the implications of information war, or how do you see this unfolding, or what what do you think? I remember when I was a kid um, back in China in when was that? Uh, sometime in the 1990s. Um, do you remember there was a time that Taiwan had the election? I think I think it was nineteen ninety six, and the U.S. sent two aircraft carriers. Um, I'd be too young to know. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so 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 basically, the U.S. sent two aircraft uh, aircraft carrier groups to the Taiwan Strait. That, that was nineteen ninety six, and uh, and during during those few days, yeah. I rem remember. I mean, I was. Um, how old was I? I was twelve. Right? I mean, I was, I was visiting my relatives in the countryside on a bicycle, and uh, and wherever I go, there's basically this radio network. So so basically broadcasting to the villagers about how evil the American regime was, 
and uh, and you just can't escape from that. It was it was basically connected everywhere. Everywhere you go, this 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 voice is is resonating in your in your mind. Mm, interesting. And um, and that was wow. the that was the. That, that that was the only source of information for many people on the ground. So 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 if you think about that, I mean, nowadays it's much more nuanced, right? I mean, people have direct access through their smartphones to to many different things. And as Dimitri said, information bubbles, and uh, and many of which is, um, um, I mean, I'm not sure about the case in China, but in many places, many of this is escaping the the, the sort of surveillance from the state or or, or or any group which tries to to control a narrative. So, so I just feel that um, I just feel that, that nowadays it's, it's it's much more nuanced, and uh, and you see the people uh, are becoming much more opinionated as well. Um, the, uh, what was that? Mm. I, was, I was I was speaking to a a relative of mine, and um, back in China, who was absolutely convinced that uh, that the US was operating uh, biochemistry. Uh, sorry. Chemical weapon laboratories in Ukraine. She was absolutely convinced. Wow! And uh, and of course we that's crazy. We we both use WeChat uh, extensively, but but her her sources on WeChat <laughs> yeah. are very very different from my different. very different from my sources. So so I think uh, I, I I don't know. I, I mean I'm not sure what this information warfare thing is. Um, is working or it just reinforces sort of uh, some 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 radical beliefs of certain people and it just keep reinforcing that do you really have the ability to influence others who who come from a very different political view or or put it that way i mean the the sort of the, the conversion cost plus the education cost would be too high for you to acquire that customer yeah actually that's exactly the framework i use when i think about this stuff so when you are in possession of a massive fire hose of media, mm. you can actually mm -hmm. significantly change perceptible in tens of percent chunks of population's minds. And that's what's happening inside Russia at the moment. Think the effect of the uh, thousand mm. hill radio or think about what you just described in the rural China in 1996, Chingan. But if you do not have such plentiful, cheap media resource, and if you have to resort to buying and operating clouds of Twitter bots, yeah, I assume you cannot really change anything, but you can reinforce existing undercurrents. And that's much more subtle mm -hmm. and uh, toxic and invisible kind of info warfare. And that's, I think, what's happening in Southeast Asia at the moment, as far as Russian propaganda is concerned. Since we're here then, what, what exactly are you guys seeing on the ground from, and I, I've been seeing things from Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Vietnam, I haven't heard too much about. I haven't reached out, I guess. But what do you guys see in terms of information and propaganda that's permeating from Russia to Southeast Asia? There, there seems to be quite a strong current of Russian support in Southeast Asia from what I've seen. I really want to see the numbers in this and how it came to be and whether my theory that it was already there or if it was fomented is true. Mm. But I'll separate because, again, no time to conduct proper research on the matter. I would always discount what, you know, uncles in the hawker center or the cab driver in the cab <laughs> say. That's always just yeah. a random white noise of humanity. But a couple of things struck me deep in the last few weeks. A business counterparty in Malaysia, a 60-plus-year-old successful man, hundreds of millions worth, who unprompted unwanted, unsolicited, sends me a random message of 
support saying your big boss Putin is doing the right thing. I literally dropped mm. my phone. Um, and even worse, in one of the boardrooms I am part of uh, in a certain corporate communication, uh, somebody executed a perfect example of classic Soviet whataboutism when I was pushing mm. probably a little bit too hard for an aggressive HR policy that would have changed the game a little bit for the Ukrainian employees of a certain subsidiary. Uh, the pushback from one of the members of the board was, but what about other conflicts and why didn't you react to those as much? Oof. Which is both a significantly painful moral punch in the face, because indeed, why wasn't I running with my hair on fire when somebody is being dissolved in acid somewhere in Yangon and on the other side, or in Iran Jaya, and on the other hand, it's like this shit Soviet propaganda has pulled for a century. Haven't you learned anything? But what mm -hmm. about the people in Africa was the classic move of every foreign ministry leader of Soviet <laughs> Union in every consternation. Every, every, every parent argument. growing up. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. What about kids in Africa? And um, yeah. So I'm like, oh, dear Lord, I need to spend some time understanding the general psyche of Southeast Asian nations with regards to Russian propaganda now, as if I didn't have much to do. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm lost. You guys see anything interesting? I mean, I think you kind of called it out. I, I, I'm seeing a lot of these auntie-uncle media, you know, the forwarding of WhatsApp and all this Facebook kind of nonsense where it's just shocking to come across your feed because these algorithms are specifically designed to reinforce your bubbles. But, you know, you're seeing them pierce your bubbles and that uh, that there is a sentiment of actually people in Southeast Asia for, you know, it's not even related to them remotely, but that, you know, them openly supporting uh, the war on Ukraine from, from the Russian perspective, right? So, but let's, like you said, it, it could be discounted, but it does seem to point to a fact that propaganda is leaking out. And there is, I mean, you know, where there's smoke, there may be some fire, whether or not it's a, a vocal minority and it stops there. Or is there something that's more bigger undercurrent? I don't know, right? So it's just that that's the question, but it is there and it is seemed to be working to a degree beyond borders, right? So, Jangan, I don't know, what do you what do you see? I don't know, I mean, through many of the business meetings, I still see lots of, um, I mean, lots of sort of emotional expression of, um, of, uh, of opinions, rather emotional expression of opinions, rather than rational sort of debate over certain things. I mean, I see that far more often. Um, and also, if you, look, I mean, I think I think that happens in in all the cultures. Um, if you, so, so, so this what aboutism, right? I mean, it's clearly not logical because I'm I'm talking to you about this topic, and you're trying to use. Um, Use use another topic to 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 to, to basically divert attention, and that 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 reminds me of a of a joke a friend of mine was uh, was actually having. So so basically he shared from China, and he, he shared me a conversation that he had with with another person. In this conversation, my friend was saying that hey you are douchebag, and um, and uh, and the other guy said hey you are douchebag. <laughs> so 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 then my friend was saying that. I've, I've, I've never denied the fact that I'm a douchebag, but my point is that you are a douchebag. You debate with me on a point that um, why you are or why you are not a douchebag. So, but uh, but you see, you, you see, when 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 these things happen, so people people resort to 
uh, emotional arguments and um, and and uh, emotional. And I think sometimes even yeah. if you talk to 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 the, to the most rational people, um, um, emotions do do come and influence their their um, their judgments. And 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 some some of these emotions um, are the things that uh, that uh, they don't really publicly talk about, but uh, but but things which are deep in their mind. Um, I. I remember, like a few years ago, I was in Indonesia talking to to to, to a few people who used to work for the government in 1990s, like you know, um, late 1990s. You see, you see the whole whole thing about Asian financial crisis, um, the um, the riots. Um, but what what they were most bitter about for for this this few gentlemen gentlemen was the loss of Timor Leste. They said um, because we were weak, we were exploited. Wow. And um, and uh, and and if we were strong as we we were, uh, like nineteen oh, eighties, whatever, we'll never have lost Timor Leste. So 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 you you would have this this gr grievance. Who 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 wouldn't have lost? Uh, Indonesia. Oh, Indonesia. Okay, yeah. Okay, That's yeah. what I thought. Okay. So 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 basically, yeah, Timor I'm not sure if the audience knows the history of that, but at some point, Indonesia was. Yeah. Go ahead. So yeah, Indonesia occupied Timor Leste from 1975 or 1976 uh, all the way until 1997, 1998, and uh, then rise happened. Um, then I think um, I think there was a referendum, and Timor Leste went on to become independent. So 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 I, I do see people who still have grievances over that, yeah. and I and I think I think I, th I think there are lots of sentiments um, across the elite in in different countries uh, at different points of time. Um, I, I I I did um I did some travel across Eastern Europe, not Russia, but uh, but but many countries in the periphery. I would, I've been to Ukraine, I've been to Moldova, I've been to the Baltic states, uh, etc. So, so I mean, you see the you see different facets of of history that that, that remain deeply entrenched in in in, in people's minds, and uh, and I'm talking about people who are informed, educated. Um, sometimes Western educated, but uh, oh. but they still have um, have cert certain grievances, nationalistic or whatever, uh, in their mind. Well, if I'm to extrapolate, what you're saying is that people have their own implicit biases about their own history, and when it when something similar resurges in present day, they attach that narrative to it and give it support. Right. And this the best example I can think of is Vietnamese Americans mm. voting for Trump. Mm. Because of they don't his policies on not liking China, it's mm. like the most shocking thing as a minority when he was attacking you know minorities openly. But you go to the Midwest, you know there were huge pockets of Vietnamese Americans who just fully supported him. Just you know, and then, again their media consumption was very different. Mm. Their their own bubble, uh, their history dictates that they still fly the South Vietnamese flag when you know the whole world's moved on. Like you go to Vietnam, any kid in the street. They're just capitalistic, you know. They everything's just modernized and moved forward, right? But these mm. people are stuck in the past. They take this narrative and they they, they support it. And I guess what you're saying is that Southeast Asia potentially that might be happening. Is that mm. fair to say? I, I'm I'm saying that uh, that uh, I mean people would have something which they have experienced or or or, or, or something which have imprinted in their mind, which will last for a very long time. As a matter of fact, what you what you just summarized, Alex, it reminds me of a couple of bits of, again, I don't know whether it's a fake or real, but it did look genuine enough. Um, um, instruction manuals for the um, various influence operations that run in my hometown of St. Petersburg, um, mm -hmm. and there were a few very interesting points there. 
that yeah every large pool of populace has its grievances some understood some just internalized and dissolved whether it's anti-americanism or some kind of local form of chauvinism or a loss over a historical mm. slight or anything else and no matter what it is you can create a meme a message a narrative that would marry that mm. with an object upon which you want this uh, displeasure to be projected and you yeah. can do it differently for different audiences so for example I'll, I'll give one bit of playbook which i thought i just saw in 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 in, in vivo um let's say you need to take somebody who is liberal in the us and project to them a way to channel their grievances into the ukraine conflict in a way that puts them more on the side of aggressive measures hmm. if you have a setup like that what do you create you create a little meme image that shows the endless landing strip full of american fighter jets and put on top of that a call to action Russia is about to find out why Russia, why Americans don't have universal health care. <laughs> I saw that mean. I saw that. <laughs> you appeal to existing grievance. You separate yeah. it from the original context and you throw you it at an object and you position the message in such a way as to direct attention to what you want people to do. In this case, I imagine it's support of a no-fly zone. Who knows what it was yeah. supposed that who created it. But Correct. Correct. You, once you set up this framework in your mind of target audience, the existing grievance, the item top on which you want to project the grievance yeah. and the positioning and the intended action item. It's not more complex yeah. than designing a marketing campaign. And um, that, I think, is the heart of 50 percent of what I see in my social feed. Well, what's what's very interesting is that with modern technology, this, you know, aggregators of information like Reddit, they had this when you put this inside an echo chamber of a subreddit, the multiplier effect is massive. Oh, then right? if it's well designed, it, it propagates. It's earned media yeah. versus bot media, absolutely. Exactly. And so, yeah, so it's it's huge. If this is an understood methodology, then I am dying for somebody like Bellingcat, somebody who does outsourced intel gathering and processing, to pay a little bit of attention to Southeast Asia and see so what sort of memes evolved into mm. self-propagation and Southeast Asian audiences, mm. because yeah. that would point to either significant ad budget behind them, which I wouldn't expect. Russia doesn't have that much money to spare at the moment. Or it really genuinely speaks to internal grievance. So if it's one of those things where, you know, Middle East, for example, is currently propagating a whole lot of, you were silent about Syria, about Iran, about Palestine, this and that, but you're focused on Ukraine because of yeah. ethnical and racial reasons. So that stuff doesn't require any media budget. It self-propagates as soon as it's well-constructed. So I'm in the market for such sightings in Southeast Asia to see what's really genuinely organic. And if you guys find any sorts of research on that, please let me know. It's fascinating, endlessly. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it gets a little, this gets a little bit off topic, but I think due to media fragmentation and censorship, there are these there there aren't these really large platforms that aggregate very easily. It's very fragmented, I would say, because you know you would have to subscribe to every single piece of fragmentation to kind of get any meaningful mo uh, signal out of that you know total data well, set, right? For to research and information. Although technically, relatively straightforward, social media listening platforms exist already. It's just you have to listen, yeah. not to mention of Coca Cola brand, but to this. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah.
Okay. So, um, is there any other topic? Uh, Jangan, do you want to say something? Or Yep. Um, have you guys heard of uh, Chairman Mao Zedong's United Front Theory? No. What is it? Basically, unite all the forces you could possibly unite against the common enemy and exploit all their grievances and channel that towards the common enemy. And uh, you sort out your differences afterwards. Hmm. It sounds very Stalinist. Yeah, I recognize the notes. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 it, yeah. There's a reason why he hated Khrushchev so much. Well, Khrushchev was in the business of sorting out things later after we won. So, yeah. But I think, Alex, to your question of what else haven't we covered, I think there is also an interesting topic which will only be important long term. Right now, it's just tragic, but it will become important. Yeah. And that's the, how shall I put it? It's not the economic impact of what's happening right now it's economic weapons that are being deployed. Mm. One, we've already discussed the sanctions, the blockade, what have you. Yep. But let's not forget about the other one. Uh, it's been already tested by Turkey, I believe, by mm -hmm. talking to European Union or its immediate neighbors from the perspective of do this for us or we open our borders to the refugees from the Middle East that we partially ourselves created. It was tested a little bit. If you've noticed, just before the war, there was a fracas on the border of Poland and Belarus on the topic of various refugees uh, coming into Europe from Belarus was not very well covered in media. And now we are talking about influx of what, four, five million people resettled into Europe. That's just mm -hmm. for a start. And I would say not to be too media quippy here, but if what Sanctions and blockade on Russian economy could be compared to a nuke. This one was a dirty bomb right back. Because unless folks in their majority can return back to their undestroyed homes, which is already an impossibility, we... There was a great TV show, BBC show, a few years ago called Years and Years. I don't know if you've chanced upon it. It's um, um, really worth watching. It's. Um, Fast forward of the next 30 years from the perspective of run-of-the-mill middle-class British family. It starts mm. with a few imaginary events that I will not spoil the viewer's experience of. And then it goes into 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and how, for example, refugees that were welcomed with flowers on the Polish border in 2022 become an economic bur burden in 2025, become a source of massive hostility in 2030 and become ghettos and prisons in 2040. Mm. So that's that's why I'm calling it the dirty bomb because impact is even slower than economic sanctions, but mm. it's massive. You create a bleeding wound in the middle of European continent. You put additional pressure on the generosity and the social support networks of uh, Western Europe. You, in the long run, weaken the economy and create even less social cohesion. Plus, you provide all sorts of fertile ground for all this nonsense about but why you care about this kind of refugee, but not that kind of refugee. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I true. think, probably unintentionally deployed, but nevertheless deployed weapon of mass economic destruction. And then on top of that, we have a few happy topics of Russia's own diaspora and immigration, but that's more of an inside baseball for the IT crowd for the moment. Yeah. Well, we mentioned that in our, our, our prep talk, right? <laughs> like as soon as you had mentioned that, I started seeing a lot of 
you know, Russians posting in Malaysia subreddit asking, oh, how is it Malaysia? What is it like? I'm thinking of leaving and coming here. And, and like you said, astutely, is that there are very few flight routes that a Russian could take to leave. Um, you know, but, but in general, aside from Russia and Ukraine, it's just massive amounts of change in migration, right? So um, don't forget don't Belarus. Russian military forgot Belarus. Belarus and it did not serve them well. Never forget them. They're very much there. <laughs> stopping trains um yeah but i think a whole separate episode could be put together in a couple of months once i got my bearings because right now you have yeah. about two hundred thousand folks who looked at the tv screen grabbed the passport and jumped on the plane armenia serbia yeah. kazakhstan and this was mm -hmm. darkly funny i mean it's tragic but i mean at some point of time you have to smile you land in kazakhstan yeah. the friendly country that was promoting it development and whatnot and they're like, yeah, you're welcome, of course, but didn't you just occupy us like in January? <laughs> and you land in Serbia and the Serbia is, I'm afraid at the moment, if I'm not wrong, going through one of its regular cycles of let's be a greater Serbia and bomb everybody else nearby. Welcome and join yeah. the army. <laughs> so that, that is a surprise <laughs> for IT guy from Moscow. You fly to Armenia, yeah. which just lost painfully in the war against Azerbaijan, the very same Bayraktar drones on display. And there is like yeah. a few apartments available and a couple of hundred, well, not a couple of tens of thousands of new tenants, the real estate market in Yerevan apparently is upside down. So yeah, folks who landed in those three locations are checking the rest of the world. And you know what? Malaysia is starting to look pretty damn good. All these empty buildings <laughs> in Cyberjaya and relatively porous yeah. borders and not as much negativity on Russian TV as let's say from Indonesia and the languages sure. are not as prohibitive as in Thailand and in Vietnam that are the usual because these yeah. are the places for the relatively well-off immigrants to live quietly by the sea but to actually yeah, work right. for a living I think Malaysia and the Philippines are actually going to catch quite a bit of IT immigration which is good for and sure. bad because you have Ukrainians Belarusians and Russians now squabbling in Kuala Lumpur Kuala Lumpur has <laughs> suffered much in its life and that sure it deserves this as well but on the other side, and I'm careful of saying this out loud in case of Malaysia, the effect of Israel, well-educated, young and highly productive IT professionals immigrating in their tens of thousands, what's not to like? Yeah, that's true. If you just keep the three groups separate from each other in different cities. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything on the ground yet, but uh, that's a very good insight. I'm uh, getting John, some I, posts I from Bali on the topic. <laughs> Bali, yeah, no, Bali for sure. All right, uh, Jangan, anything? No, just um, um, I, on a personal note, I'm actually quite glad that uh, that countries in Southeast Asia are opening up. So yeah, so it's been too long. Yeah, you, are you going to go back to your usual grueling travel death march across the world, or what, what's your plan? Uh, I think I'm much more informed now, and uh, and uh, I will not do day trips to Jakarta anymore. <laughs> I did lots of this in 2019, and yeah. now, now I'm reflecting that. I mean, day trips are like the worst use of your time. Yes, you lose more than half the day. You get like a few hours of productivity. Your rest is not good. Uh, that is true. Um, I guess for my closing note then would be that uh, nothing very topical, but this whole exercise episode and the coverage of Ukraine has forced me to really reevaluate my information diet. Uh, I've never had to really 
I never really thought about my bubbles before. I always knew that there was the bubble, but just never actively engaged in it. But now I actively look at sources that just give the facts, like AP News or Reuters, where there's reporters on the ground. It's And it's very disparate data. It's just them saying data points, but you have to put it together yourself. But then, you know, I read from the left and I also read from the right. But ideally, people tend to be more factual and they have those uh, AI algorithms now that can tell you which which kind of language is being used in terms of implicit bias and which one is more objective. And, you know, they have gave I've, these kind of AIs show you that despite it being right or left leaning, sometimes they break the news that is the most accurate and most objective despite, you know, previous biases. So I, I've incorporated much more wider information diet, I'd say. And uh, it's been quite eye-opening. So I don't know. What, any, any final closing notes for you guys? That processing sources and figuring out which information to read has become a second full-time job, and it's bloody exhausting. <laughs> but it's been a while yeah. like that. Um, yeah. No, thank you for having me, guys. This was uh, slightly cathartic. Thank you so much. Mm. It's... Um, uh, difficult to discuss the stuff with folks with more emotional stake and situations on the ground because you just have to basically yeah. be careful and gentle about people who are already in distress not to put them into more distress so talking to yeah as it were impassionate oh, sorry in you're not passive observers but you're not necessarily emotionally invested into the shelling of Mariupol so it's a little bit um, easier to talk to you with your perspectives from from a more global point of view. So thank you. Jangan. Thank you. OK, no notes, nothing, no insights. Usually the insights no, I master. Think, <laughs> no, I think we, ha we have covered a lot. Um, so so I mean, um, I, I think all of us are trying to, and many of our listeners are trying to to seek the truth uh, in this world where where things are, where there's lots of information flying around, whether it's about politics, about geopolitics, about the economy, yeah. Or about companies that uh, that we may or may not invest in. So 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 I think having that exercise of um, of, of constantly looking at topics, constantly reflecting about the information you have received, and constantly reevaluating the perspectives you have formed, and constantly involved in that, I I, I think uh, I think has been beneficial to me, and uh, and and I hope that will be beneficial to our listeners as well. Yeah. Okay. And you know what else I noticed, Alex? And feel free to cut it out from the final edit is that maybe it's just my dour um, appearance or maybe it's just my mood this morning, but I think I totally darkened the tone of your otherwise usually quite cheerful podcast. But there, is a, <laughs> there is a reason for that because I feel deeply um, uncomfortable making any jokes about the situation and also yeah. because jokes have been weaponized and they are now That's part yeah. of the information warfare and you make a quip or comment anything uh, anything hilarious has already been co-opted by one of the parties in the conflict but mm. look can i give you two one cheerful and one really dark and you decide whether they make it into the podcast because mm. go for it whatever happens to the collective mind of i guess i wouldn't say it's russia but at least the russians that i listen to the usual reaction is dark sense of humor mm. and uh, sometimes it produces uh, pieces of wisdom so mayor of Moscow about 10 days ago declared that no more COVID mandates or restrictions apply. No masks, mm -hmm. no gathering limits, no QR codes, no rules, probably to help mm. sustain the small and medium businesses a little bit longer. 
Uh, but yeah. the immediate response from collective unconscious was following Coca-Cola and McDonald's COVID-19 also folded its operations in Russian Federation, <laughs> being the international <laughs> organization that it is. And that's the cheerful one. The dark one that I tested on a couple of people and people just recoil in horror. So I'm not entirely sure it's, it's, it's good for this podcast, but uh, it goes approximately as follows. And it's actually a real statistical data point, which I cannot process. Um, suicide rate in Russian Federation fell by half in January and February of 2022. Everybody's just real curious how it will end. Oh my God, <laughs> that is dark humor. That is dark humor. Uh, you know it's what? I don't gallows. see anything wrong with it. It's past yeah. gallows, but it also takes a while to process. Yeah, you use this piece of content as you see fit. I look forward <laughs> to 100,000 hate messages in my inbox. I mean, look, we're not we're not in the process of censorship here. So, you know, we, we can leave it as is. And uh, if you're comfortable with it, we're comfortable with it. So, but, uh, you know, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing all your insights. I think I've definitely learned a lot and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again once you've gathered more insights and data in the future. Cheers. In the meantime, Jingan and I will get back to regular programming on the influx and outflux of cash in Southeast Asia tech. Stay yep. tuned. It <laughs> yes. will happen in the next few weeks. Yeah, working yes, progress. Stay tuned to Central Ventures and Momentum Works. Cheers. All Thank right, you. guys. Thank you. Thank you.